Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. I'm Robbie. If you would be turning your Bibles to Genesis 17, we're going to finish up our series this morning as we look at the promise of Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, that's been a blessing to us, I'm sure, um, as we've seen how the gospel is promised in the very beginning of the story. So we're looking at Genesis 17. Um, And so as we come to our conclusion in this series, we we come to the promised birth of of Isaac, or the the promise of the birth of Isaac. And all throughout this series, you know, our our aim has been uh, in this Advent time to see the promise of Christ in Genesis, the very beginning of the story, and and how that makes our faith in line with the great promises of redemption that have been from the very beginning of the story, from Genesis, and all the way through uh, Revelation, that, that our faith doesn't um, began with the book of Matthew, as it were. It is, we don't have a, a New Testament faith that's somehow divorced from the way that God was working in the Old Testament, but it stands in continuity with that, that God's promises of redemption have been there from the very beginning, from Adam's fall from sin, or fall into sin from, from the, the estate in, he was, in which he was created, and, and the promise of redemption that, that was promised to him in the very Garden of Eden, and how we see that now, um, and we partake of that as believers in the New Covenant. And so uh, our, our aim has been to, to sort of put on Christocentric glasses, so to speak, to see uh, in the Bible, particularly in Genesis, how the promise of Christ is there and and how it comforts us to know that God is for us in these things, that that he isn't a God, as as I've said many times, who stands up in heaven with his arms crossed, um, throwing down laws in the Old Testament just because he likes to see people trip up. That's not God's character, and it's not his purpose, and it's not his aim, but his aim has always been redemption, to to make a people for himself who will say, he is our God, and over whom he can say, these are my people. And and that's been our aim, to see our Bible, to read our Bible with Christocentric glasses. We we shouldn't be ashamed of that fact. That's what we're called to do as God's people, and what he calls us to do um, as his people as we read our Bible and, and come to know the story better. And so we see also this, this strange paradox. That's what we've been, we've been studying especially from these, these chapters in Genesis. The strange paradox, at least from a, from a human perspective, uh, of judgment coupled with the promise of redemption. We see time and again that as man um, comes against the, the promises of God and, and really struggles to believe them, to really believe that God is good and that his promises are trustworthy and that he is for his people in, in every good way, and as he struggles to believe this, he falls into sin and, and just makes a mess of things. And almost from a human perspective, we would say, uh, throws into uh, disarray the, the whole promise of, of redemption that God has promised from, from Genesis uh, uh, 3.1. Um, and, and yet we see that God comes and in great mercy and in great love restores people, restores his people, and, and reminds them that though they have sinned, that though we have failed to trust God, he has not given up on his covenant promises, that he is for his people. And yet, though, though there is very serious sometimes consequences to our sin and failure, yet God's mercy and, and love is always at the back of it, and he is drawing his people to himself. And, and so we see this, this strange paradox, as I say, of, at least from a human perspective, of, of judgment coupled with redemption. And we see it, too, in Genesis 17. And, you know, this makes our text, I think, an appropriate uh, text for the final Sunday of of this year. As we maybe look back, um, as is our want sometimes, uh, over the past year and and think about all the things that we did or perhaps for most of us, all the things that we wish we'd done but left undone or the things that we did and now regret and and look in anticipation to the year ahead and and hope maybe to, to see things differently, to do things differently. It reminds us that 
really at the bottom of it all, really what God calls us to do is put our trust in him, to lean upon his strength and his promises and not to rest upon our own ability to make or break the the promises of God, to make or break uh, the the trajectory of our own lives, to make or break um, all the good promises that he gives to us. And so may God help us to see that the great lessons from the year past, if we are in him, the great lessons from the year past and the great hope for, for the year to come comes down to this. God alone is the redeemer of his people and all our good comes from his hand alone. And and so I ask you this question right off the bat. Uh, What desires are shaping your plans for the year ahead? And what will you do to accomplish them? That's that's kind of a maybe a cheeky way of kind of saying, what are your New Year's resolutions? We're we're all prone to make those. And and we usually have in mind some some plan that we're going to do to make it happen. Um, and and we see, we'll see in, in our text that Abraham had a promise and, and he had a plan in mind that he was going to make it happen. And it wasn't in keeping with God's good promises to him. He tried to take those by his own hand and, and make it happen in his own strength and power. So we need to be thoughtful about this. What, what desires are shaping what we hope to see happen in the year ahead? Are our desires shaped by um, the promises that God has laid out for us as his people? And, and are we leaning into the things that will enable us to understand those better, to grow in them, to grow in Christian maturity? Or are, des- are our desires still shaped by our own private interests, um, the, the, the fleshly passions that we still struggle with? Um, and, and are the, the plans that we're making for the year ahead more and more shaped by um, our own perceived wisdom and strength to try to make it happen? Or are they shaped by a humble dependence upon the means of grace, a desire more and more to know God better, to, to become intimate friends with Jesus through his word and, and through Christian fellowship and through a diligent attention and preparation in, in worship. Um, these are important things, and we'll see how important it is as we recognize, again, that the story really is that oftentimes we struggle to believe that God is for us, and so we, we go our own way and, and make our own thing and, and find out that that doesn't work, but yet God is always good and he is for us and brings us back in great mercy and love. And so the key truth for, for our scripture passage this morning is that the redemptive promise of God stands despite the sin and failure of his people. And if that seems maybe a little bit overly broad, perhaps you would push back a little bit and say, well, couldn't you say that pretty much about every chapter of the Bible? Yeah, 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 you probably could. But, but you see, this is an important way to, to dig in deep into the, the lesson of Genesis 17 um, as we recognize that really the, the promise of, of God's uh, redemption can't be wrestled by us by our own strength, that we really need to rest and receive Christ alone uh, to, to make that uh, a reality, to, to, to have it operative in our own lives. So let's see it from the text. We're just going to read the whole chunk at, at one go. This is 17 verses 1 through 21. Hear God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Well, we see in this uh, chapter that God reaffirms his covenant with uh, his covenant presence with uh, Abraham, despite Abraham's sin and, uh, and failure. And it's not my intention, of course, to preach Genesis 16 from Genesis 17, but, but to give us a little bit of context um, for, for what makes this so remarkable, we've got to remind ourselves that just earlier in uh, the previous chapter in Genesis 16 was the incident in which Abraham, after receiving the promise, the good promise that uh, he would have a son in his old age and Sarah would, would bear a child, and this would be the covenant of promise, this would be um, so to speak, the, the way in which the godly seed would, would come and continue in, in line and, and God's great promise of a Savior, one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, would come, would come through Abraham, and he would be a blessing to, to many nations, not just to his own family or own particular tribe or provincial little place in the world, but, but to many nations, to all over the world. And so he'd receive this great promise, and all right, now where is it? It wasn't forthcoming, and it was hard for Abraham, I'm sure, like it would be for all of us, to believe that God was really going to do it. I mean, after all, how usual is it for an old man to, to have a child? And, and so um, he listened to the wife, uh, the, count, the, the counsel of his wife, uh, Sarah, who, who told him to take her handmaiden, Hagar, and, and, and try to have a child with her. So he did, and, and Ishmael was born. And the, the funny thing, though, is that it's about 13 years after the birth of Ishmael before God shows up in Genesis 17 and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me, before me and be blameless. So we wonder, we, we can just speculate here, but we wonder what was going on in, in Abraham's head at this time. You know, 13 years, that's a, that's a long time um, to just kind of not hear anything from the Lord. And I wonder how often we, we go through periods like that. We, we, even as, as, as wonderful as the promises of God are to us and how wonderfully he has shown himself faithful to us. 
Um, how, how often we, we go through a period in which it seems that we don't hear from God. His word isn't as sweet to us as it was once before. Worship isn't as moving and powerful, and we feel maybe a bit lethargic. Maybe we feel even a little bit lethargic after this Christmas holiday. Isn't that usually the way it goes? After a period of rest and celebration, we feel like, well, that was kind of, I need some rest from all of that. And, and, and so we go through these periods, though, in which, which the promises of God seem distant and, and foreign. And God just doesn't seem as present as we would like him to be. And Abraham probably felt that too. And, and, and the temptation then is to try to wrestle the promises that God has given um, to us by our own strength and just sort of make things happen. And, and when we do that, we usually, and in Abraham's case, certainly fall into sin. We do things contrary to God's will, things we know we ought not to do. But we can sometimes rationalize in it, right? We'll rationalize it by saying, well, it's for the greater good, right? It's, for, it's in keeping with God's good promises. I'm just doing the things that are going to make this happen, and isn't it a good thing that I should be a blessing to many nations and the, the promised seed should come through my line and, and the whole world be experience the, the blessings of salvation? So, I mean, just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get it done. And don't trust the promises of God. And, and that's the temptation for us. That's the temptation that Abraham faced. And 13 years later, uh, after the mess that he had made, and, and we, we recognize a little bit of the, the, the text is, is, is funny in the way that Genesis 16 talks about it, but we recognize immediately, Abraham recognizes, at least he, he ought to recognize, this is not the way to go, because immediately, as you'd expect, there's family dysfunction in his family, and, and this is not in keeping with God's good promises. This is, this, his family is just in disarray because of what he has done. And yet, God shows up and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And, and much depends, of course, upon the way in which um, Abraham responds to this. He, he could respond in, in guilt and shame and, and reject that and, and think, well, I messed it up, so I've got to fix it somehow in my own strength again. And, and yet, that's not the response that Abraham demonstrates. And, and we see later, Paul will explain to us that, that Abraham's trust in God and his faithful obedience to the commandments that God had given him demonstrated that he, he believed God that God had restored him and that redemption was, was near to him. So we see that God responds in great mercy, and he brings Abraham back uh, from going his own way. He assures him that he will give him a son through Sarai, or Sarah, and that his covenant will be established through him. And, and, and so confirming the certainty of, of this promise, of course, we have uh, God commands the, 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 um, the sacrament, we would say, of circumcision. is the way in which God's people at, at this point in redemptive history are, are set apart. And though it may be strange for us to kind of think about and, and, and hear, um, really the main point is, is to recognize that, that circumcision, this, this sign of the covenant, demonstrated that God's covenant promises were going to happen and, and come in a way that was totally separate from our efforts to really show that God had set apart a people for himself and that the covenant line would continue in God's power alone and in God's, um, God's timing alone. It signifies that God's people are set apart, not because of anything that they do, but by God himself. And, 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 and so in, we see some analogs to this, right? In, in baptism, the, the, covenant of, uh, the, the uh, sacrament of, of the new covenant. Um, baptism has replaced circumcision, and it signifies, of course, the, the greater and more complete advantages that we have in Christ. But still, it signifies not, first of all, a decision that, that we make for Christ, but, but first of all, the, the great mercy and, and grace that God has shown for us in Christ. God is a decisive actor in the great drama of redemption. And so here um, we see that, that God is the one who moves. God is the one who draws us. That, that, that really, it's, it's not up to us to, to, 
to make a decisive stand and then wrestle the promises of God and, and make them happen in our own power and strength. It's really to rest and receive upon what he has told us and, and, and believe that he will do all that he has promised in spite of all of the temptation we have to disbelieve and to distrust and, and to doubt. And here again, we see another example of this in the way that Abraham's name is, or Abram's name is changed to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. It's almost as if to say the, the promises of God are much greater than they even had expected to receive from themselves. Um, Sarai's name means um, princess, or Sarah's name means princess, and it, it signifies the fact that God is going to make her literally the mother of many nations. And, and, and so the same is true of Abraham, that he will be the father of many nations. Not just, not just that his particular line will continue, but that his particular line will expand throughout the whole world and that many nations will be drawn into the promises that God has given him. And once again, Abraham is called to trust and obey. His response to the word of God and his command of circumcision is really an indication of his obedience, of, of his trust in God. Um, and, and of course, his restoration in, in, in obedience to him. And so Timothy Ward, uh, this has implication, of course, for, for us all. Timothy Ward, he says that Abraham's response to God's words simply is also a response to God himself. His obedience to and trust in God's words are also, at one and the same time, an obedience to and trust in God himself. I wonder if we, wonder if we hear that, if we, we are moved at the, the astounding fact of that, 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 we, that we interact, that we have a relationship with God, that we come to know him, through and, uh, the way in which we re react and, and respond and receive his word. Um, it's amazing. Think about the way in which, um, as, as the people of Israel are about to cross over into the promised land, and Moses is reminding them of the great um, mercy and grace that God has shown them as they walked through the wilderness, and reminds them that when they were at Mount Sinai, at, at Horeb, God spoke to them, and they didn't see a form. And, and this is sort of Moses' rationale behind the second commandment, thou shalt not make a graven image. And he says, you didn't see a form. You heard a voice. And, and that was what they were meant to respond to. And, and, and sometimes we might struggle and, and try to figure out, oh, what does that mean? Well, why, why all this mumbo-jumbo about not making a graven image and, and responding to a voice? Well, because it depends on our obedience to God. Not, if we try to make an image, then we can, we, can, we can manipulate that. It can be in our own image. We can say, well, I'll do this thing and that thing. I can receive the promises of God, but then I'll take this handmaiden and, and try to make a son come through her, and, and I've got it. I, I'll just wrestle it with my own power rather than I'll, I'll hear the voice of God and I'll trust and obey and live in obedience to him no matter how long it takes. And, and, and that's our response to God. So, so we hear God's word, and, and we recognize that in God's word, we come to know God himself, and we come to respond to him. And so what are we doing as we, as we come to God's word? Are we, are we hearing it just as mainly an academic exercise or as a way to, to receive promises, but then we go off and, and do our own thing? Um, or are we responding to God in trust and obedience, believing that our response to his word is, is really, at bottom, a response to him himself? And so this indicates um, that the first thing, going back to Genesis 17, the first thing that uh, being a descendant of Abraham means, uh, and sharing, therefore, in the blessings of uh, Abraham, the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, chiefly, of course, through Christ, is, is sharing in the faith that Abraham had, that, that God will, will do uh, all that he promised to do, that we will trust in his word, that we'll respond to uh, what he has told us and, and rest in it alone and not in our own strength. 
And so I ask you this question. It's a good question to, to ponder as we, as, again, as we look back on the year behind and, and maybe regret some of the things we, we did or regret some of the things we left undone. In what ways have you experienced God's presence through his word this past year? And, and how have you also been challenged by his word this past year? That's going to look differently, I think, for, for all of us as, as we've gone through different circumstances. Um, as God's word has come to us at different points and challenged us to, to believe and trust at different points. Um, but, but in what ways have you experienced that? In what ways, maybe to take it a little bit further, um, are we planning, are we um, setting ourselves up to, to experience God's word in the next year? It, it, in all of our resolution making for the year ahead, uh, what resolutions are we making that we will be diligent to attend to his word, that we'll be diligent to prepare our hearts to receive it and, and lay it up in our hearts and, and cherish it and, and, and obey his word, and, and, and in that way to experience him? Uh, in John 8, 39, this is, Jesus uh, confronts the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and he says this very striking thing. He says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And, and of course, his his what makes that so striking is that he's challenging their unbelief, that they're, they're, they're accusing Jesus of many things, but not being the one who was promised. And, and he says, if you were Abraham's children, if you, really claim, if you really were who you claimed to be, you would do what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? He believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so the provision for redemption for us um, and, and the, the escaping of, of God's judgment for us is to believe God, is to believe his word. And it's received not by our works, but by faith alone. Not by works done by us to somehow make us worthy of it, to, to merit it, um, but to rest in his provision of it alone. And this reminds us, of course, that God's covenant is an everlasting covenant. It's the same as it was for us, or the same as it is for us, as it was for Abraham. Not done by our own strength, not done in our own works. And that's why Paul can say things like in uh, Galatians 2.16, that we rest not in works done by us, but in faith alone. And it perfectly matches, and it's perfectly in keeping with the message of Genesis 17, that Abraham, the, the, the promise of Isaac comes from not the works that, that Abraham does, but by faith alone. And this indicates that we have a God who will not cease to do good for his people because he is a covenant-keeping God. He will be our God, and the truth of this is really astounding, that he will be our God, not because we do things that make it happen. Not because we are particularly um, above the rest of the people in the world, worthy of it, but because of his great promises. And he is a God who is faithful. And so God is not like any false God that we worship or are tempted to worship, whose, whose favor depends on us, who, who is fickle and, and goes up and down in his uh, emotions. Instead, he comes to us in our sin and brokenness and raises us to new life so that we, we may respond to him and commune with him in joyful obedience. So in coming to Christ alone by grace alone through faith alone, we share and, and really in part fulfill the great promise to Abraham. We come to share in the fact that God is the God of those who call upon his name and he blesses us with his presence and care. And we fulfill the fact that God's design was that through Abraham's seed, the whole world would be included in the promise of that redemption. And so God declares that, that it's through Isaac, the son that he will give to Abraham and Sarah, not Ishmael, who will be the one through whom the covenant line continues. The godly seed will come through him, and the blessing of the covenant line will come through his line. 
And God's, so God's blessing does not come to us because of, of uh, as I say, of our works, but by his power. And if Abraham had hoped that the union between him and Hagar and the birth of Ishmael would help along, uh, get that, that promise along on the tracks, uh, help along God's promise, God here declares that his miraculous power alone will be the cause of the fulfillment of his promise. And of course, this teaches us to rest in God's sovereign care for us and not in our own perceived wisdom and strength. Uh, this is a, a striking thing. Um, uh, haven't we all noticed, I'm sure we have, that as we go through life, God's providence is, is consistent enough so that we know that we ought to be wise and thoughtful about the decisions that we make. Um, that if we are irresponsible and, and thriftless and, and lazy, there are some real and predictable consequences that come along from that. But we also know that, that God's uh, providence is not so, not so obvious to us that we will know whether we, we will die tomorrow or be alive tomorrow, or the, whether we shall be a rich person when we die or a poor person, or the multitude of things that could happen even tomorrow or the next year. Um, and that really teaches us that though God calls us to, to, to be obedient to His, to his, to his commandments, um, to be thoughtful about the way in which we engage the world and engage one another, um, to be wise and discerning. Um, we also need to rest not in our own strength, not in our own power to make things happen, um, but rest in His promises. And, and that teaches, of course, the great truth not to be anxious. Um, again, when we're faced with a, with a long lapse, may, this maybe it sometimes seems, between the promises that we receive from God and, and the, the fulfillment of them, um, maybe it's 13 years or, or even longer. Maybe it's just a couple of months. Or maybe you're like me, and the, it gets to be rainy one day, and I just think, oh, man, this is not what I was hoping for, and where is God in all of this? Um, however long it is between the, the, the great promises and the hope we have for full communion with, with the Lord Jesus and, and, and the distance between that and what we really experience, um, we don't rest in our own strength. We don't rest in our own ability to make things happen. We rest in God's sovereign care for us alone. And it's also a good thing to notice that God doesn't cast aside Ishmael. Uh, it's true that the, the promise will come through God's power alone and not in Abraham's ability to, to make it happen, to, to get it back along on the tracks. Um, but he doesn't cast aside Ishmael. Uh, John Calvin, I think, has a helpful way of thinking about this. He says that God liberally and profusely promises to Ishmael whatever is desirable with respect to this earthly life. And yet he accounts as nothing at all the gifts he confers on him in comparison with the covenant which was, which was to be established in Isaac. It therefore follows that neither wealth nor power nor any other temporal gift is promised to the sons of the Spirit but an eternal blessing which, which is possessed only by hope in this world. Therefore, however we may, we may abound in delights and in all good things, our happiness is still transient unless by faith we penetrate into the celestial kingdom of God where a great and higher blessing is laid up for us. And that's really very fancy language for saying that God doesn't promise to us all the things that the world leans after and, and we sometimes pursue in, in false and, and empty shadows of disobedience. But God promises us a higher blessing in Christ. And so it, it is good that we can sometimes rejoice in the good gifts that God has given us as he's blessed us profusely um, and as we, I'm sure, have had time to celebrate even over this past week. And yet we know that we ought to lean higher into the things that he's promised us in Christ. And that will enable us, maybe like some of the Christians in China who are experience, uh, experiencing a new crackdown on their faith. Um, Christians like, 
I think it's Pastor Wang Yi, who is one of my new heroes. I've just found out about him the, the past week, but um, is now in prison for preaching the gospel and, 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 and one who has been very faithful in preaching the gospel in spite of continued threats of government agents knocking on his door and saying, if you don't quit this, you're going to go to jail. Um, and, and yet, so we might think about that and think, well, where is God in all of that? Well, God doesn't promise to us an easy life. He doesn't promise, us, uh, promise to us all the things that we sometimes want in, in this life. But he does promise us a higher blessing, and that is communion with him in Christ. And, and that's what he promised to Isaac and, and through the line that would follow through Isaac. And so if we would be children of Isaac, children of Abraham, people who belong and are counted among the children of God and not children of Ishmael, may we seek those higher blessings. May we seek the promises that God promises in the gospel rather than in the world. And so this means that everything depends for us on being made new creations in Christ. We're not going to have that attitude. We're not going to be the kind of Christians who can stand up in the face of persecution if the blessings that Ishmael gets are all we're thinking about. That's all, it's all on our horizon. We've got to be made new creatures who desire something else. So um, to go back to our point about circumcision, circumcision was the sign of the old covenant that God would be faithful to his promise to bring a redeemer from the seed of the woman. And it helped to bring into greater clarity the promises of Genesis 3.15. But circumcision itself was, was not what made the promise true. It's been done away with in the New Covenant era. And God's promises are now visibly represented to us in the elements of baptism and the Lord's table. And here, too, we see the certainty of God's redemptive promises. Here, too, we are reminded that it does not depend upon us, but upon God alone. So, another question. In what ways have you been challenged to believe God's promises this year? And how has he shown himself faithful to you despite your changing moods? Again, what counts as a new creation? Um, and, and this we experience not in a straight line up to glory, but through many twists and turns and experiences in the valley as well as on the peak. And, and so our moods go up and down, but God's promises are true and they're steadfast. And so in what ways have we experienced his, the truth of his promises? And in what ways have we been challenged to believe the truth of those promises? And how, have he shown, how has he shown himself faithful to us despite our changing moods? Again, what counts is a new creation. Or even more precisely, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7:19, faith working through love. The trust in, in God's promises, the trust that he will be for us in every good way, and the evidence of that in the way in which we love one another. And love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. And again, what we need is new hearts that trust Jesus' word, that, that, that come to his word not as something to be manipulated or, or merely to hear and then try to work out in our own strength, but really trust that he will be faithful to do what he says. And then the evidence of that in our belief in God and obedience to his commandments. So, Abraham received the covenant of circumcision and responded to it. In, in the act of, of humble faith. And we receive the covenant of baptism and respond to it as an act of humble faith. And yet, the thing that is most magnified in these things is God's covenant care for his people, his presence with them. Despite their sin and failure, um, he will be faithful to, to, to make his promises stand, to be, to be with his people. So God's grace in the midst of judgment is seen in that he provides his people with a sign that confirms the certainty of his promises Promises that he will fulfill despite his people's sin, despite um, our unbelief, and in a way that will, he will ultimately correct the sin and unbelief of his people so that we can live with him in perfect purity and peace forever. So what does Genesis 17, 1 through 21 teach us? It teaches us that we are called to respond to God's promises with humble trust, 
believing that he will faithfully do all that he has promised us in Christ. May that be our motto in the year ahead, that we would prepare for the year ahead and then act in such a way that we evidence our trust in God's good promises, that we will lay hold of the means of grace, that we will be diligent to um, find ourselves frequently in the place of prayer, um, that we would not be people who hear God's good promises or even get excited about all that God is doing in our church, in our community, in our families, and then try to wrestle the results that we hope to see from that by our own strength. But instead, may we trust in his word alone. May we, may we see in his word not merely words on a page, but, an, but a way to experience him and respond to him directly. Um, the God who is invisible has made himself known in Jesus Christ, and he is the word made flesh. So may we respond to that in, in humble trust, believing that he will be faithful uh, to his covenant promises despite our struggle with sin and unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your covenant with us, for the covenant of grace that you have made and that you have faithfully performed throughout redemptive history and, and have brought to bear uh, in Christ. Lord, may we be people who believe you, um, not resting in our own strength or, or trying to uh, make these things happen by our own power or perceived wisdom. May instead, Lord, we come to you with the trust that you'll be faithful to do all that you have promised, even when it seems, Lord, that what you have promised is far beyond our understanding or our ability to see how you will accomplish it. Uh, may we still know that you are God and that you will be the God of your people. And may we rest as your people in your sovereign care for us. May that be uh, the way in which we approach this year ahead. Um, and, and look back, particularly on the year behind. May we see your faithfulness to us in all that you have done in this year. Um, and may we not be overcome by our sin and guilt. Instead, may we rest and, and receive all that you've done for us in Christ, knowing that you count us as righteous in your sight because of who he is for us. And may we um, be encouraged and made joyful by the fact that you rejoice over your people because of who you are and your covenant promises to us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.